The views, statements and opinions expressed in this episode are solely our own, including our guest, and these do not necessarily represent those of our employers. I'm Georgie and I'm Vijay Tharin. Welcome to our podcast Diversity and Inclusion Satisfying the Tick Box. In today's episode we are going to cover increasing accessibility for neurodivergent people in sexual health services and we have Dr Helen Drink Turner from Brooke Charity and Brooke is a charity that supports people with their sexual health and well-being. Welcome Helen, can you give us an introduction to yourself and to who Brooke is and what do you do? Yep, absolutely. So thanks for having me today. My name's Helen. Um, Brooke is a national charity. and We have quite a few arms to what we do. So we are a sexual health charity predominantly. We support people with their sexual health and their well-being. We have clinical sexual health services across England where people can go and get sexual health care. Um, we do relationships and education and sex education, and that happens in schools and um, professional settings a variety of settings really and we also have um, an arm that is around health promotion and um, trying to campaign for better health equality for people as well so that's what we do um, and then I'll introduce yourself to me a little bit so I work for Brooke as Brooke's designated neurodivergence lead so what I do is I look after increasing our accessibility and representation for neurodivergent people and that's people that use our services and people that work for us as well. Sounds really really interesting work that you do and um, I, I was just curious around kind of what the background to Brooke's work around neurodivergence is? Yeah, so it's really important to us at Brooke that we're increasing accessibility for people who want to use our services. And we want everybody that needs to access our services to be able to access them. Um, Increasing accessibility is actually on our strategic plan. It's one of our four strategic aims that we're working towards over the next four years. And we recognise that when we are working with people, whether that's young people or adults, there's a lot of barriers that people face that prevent them from looking after their sexual health and well-being. Uh, these can be any barriers. So I particularly look at, at neurodivergence and how being neurodivergent might prevent somebody from being able to access our clinics or our education offer or anything else that we do. But there are other barriers that are really important to us as well. And we're always thinking about ways that we can try and influence and change um, the cultural and societal barriers that people face. And that can be stigma. So stigma around sexually transmitted infections, stigma around sexual health, stigma around sex in general can also be those structural issues that we see. And um, we're always working to try and influence change in racialized health inequalities, poverty, things like digital exclusion where people can't access the internet as easily and things like that. Um, we started looking at neurodivergence specifically in around March last year. And since then, we've been really looking at how we can make our services more accessible and improve our services for neurodivergent people. So um, in terms of neurodiversity and neurodivergence, how does Brooke kind of use those terms? Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. And I think these two terms are they're really current. There's a lot of people starting to use these words now. Um, and sometimes 
we use them interchangeably. Sometimes I'll see um, in, in the news or in other places, I'll see neurodiversity and neurodivergence used as if they mean the same thing. And um, that isn't what, what Brooke does. So um, we use a definition by Cassiane Asasimasu of neurodivergence, and they created this definition of neurodivergence as just being anything that's neurological different to the typical and it covers a wide range of experiences it can include um, experiences like autism adhd ocd it can include um, some mental health conditions essentially it's a an experience of having a brain that functions and works and experiences the world slightly different to the brains that other people other people's brains um, and it's really important to us that people self-identify into that if they feel that neurodivergence fits them it, it does we don't specify who we see as neurodivergent we just say that it is the experience of being neurologically different to the typical neurodiversity is something that i do see quite a lot and i do see people say um they're neurodiverse or i'm neurodiverse and neurodiversity is a different term and that was invented by um a brilliant sociologist called Judy Singer. She invented it in the 1990s. Um, and she always says it was designed to reflect a concept similar to biodiversity. So it was this idea that all brains are different and all brains work differently, um, but some have neurodivergence as well. So every single brain will be different. Um, in a lot of Brooks kind of blog posts or literature around neurodivergence we will often say neurodivergence and neurodiverse and we do that because not because we're kind of confusing one with the other or we see them as interchangeable we do that because a lot of the young people that we work with have said they don't feel comfortable yet with the term neurodivergent it still sounds a little bit too um, othering for them and that they would choose to say that they're neurodiverse so that's why we include it um, and if in the future that changes and people just feel that neurodivergent is a more accurate term we will evolve with that we try to match the terminology we're using with what our service users and the communities we support tell us they want to be used to represent them yeah I think it's really important for them to kind of self-identify rather than kind of putting a a label on them instead. Thank you for that, Helen. And I just wanted to take it back a little bit and understand how did Brooke initially identify this opportunity to address accessibility for neurodivergent people? If you can tell us a little bit more about that. So it came from, we were seeing um, a lot of young people. It starts with our young people's work. So Brooke does work across all ages. But we first started to notice with the young people that we work with, especially the young people that we work with one to one, that we were seeing a lot of young people who were neurodivergent, who maybe um, felt like they needed extra support around their relationships and sex education, and also then to access things that they needed around their sexual health. Um, so that was where it came from. And then since we started this role, we've then undertaken sort of further study to see what those barriers are for neurodivergent young people especially and how we can really help to address those barriers what are kind of some things you've learned from from your research process yeah so we have a participation team at brook and our participation team are brilliant they work really closely with the people that use all of our services and they're always working to make sure that our services are the closest to what those people want as we 
we can make them and that we're evolving our services in line with what people want. So last year, from March 2023, we decided to talk to um, as many young neurodivergent people as we could between um, 18 and 25 about what they wanted from um, the sexual health services and if they, if they were to visit sexual health clinic what barriers they would face and what they would need um, and it was a really interesting piece of research we learned a lot doing it and we did quite a lot to make sure that it was the focus was on neurodivergent people that it was very person-centered so we designed a visual version of consent forms for that so that if anyone did have any learning disabilities they would also understand what they were taking part in and um, we decided to run focus groups um, and obviously we know that for some neurodivergent people, large open-ended questions might feel quite expansive, quite difficult to answer. So what we did is we despised a three-tier structure of questions. So we started with a very open-ended one, or we had the goal to end at a very open-ended one. And then we worked backwards and tried to create some um, smaller questions that could get people there if they needed to. And we tested those questions out with someone who is in one of our participation forums. She gave us some advice on um, how to change them. We changed them in line with what they said. So our questions were kind of QA'd by a neurodivergent person as well. And then before we did any, any focus groups, we offered um, a session about Brooke, what Brooke is, and about what sexual health is, so that the people that were taking part had a chance to um, know what some of the questions would be covering and know a little bit about sexual health because some of the young people we were speaking to didn't have a, hadn't had a lot of prior relationships and sex education before so it was important that they kind of knew what they were signing up to um I should have mentioned as well actually it was 16 to 25 not 18 to 25 the young people that we worked with in that study um so yeah we, we it was a really good study in terms of us learning how to change our processes to meet neurodivergent young people's needs um but we learned an awful lot about the barriers that neurodivergent people face when they come to use a sexual health clinic and what was really interesting is that um we were looking when we started we thought that the barriers we would find would be once people got into the clinic and we would be thinking about what can we change about our clinics to make them more accessible but actually what we found is there are quite a lot of barriers to getting to the clinic in the first place as well. So it was an interesting study. So just to cover off, uh, Helen, then in terms of these young people who are 16 to 25, um, can I ask, were they quite forthcoming and open about the experiences? And you've mentioned the barriers. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more in terms of what are those barriers that these young people have been facing um, to within clinics? Yeah, um, so they were very forthcoming. It was wonderful, actually. We got a lot of very frank, very forthright feedback about um, young people's experiences, not just with sexual health clinics, but with healthcare in general. For some of the young people we spoke to, they hadn't visited a sexual health clinic yet. So we asked them to think about their experiences of attending any healthcare setting and what made it a positive experience or a less positive experience, and then try to think about if this was to do with their sexual health, if that if those answers would still be the same. They were very forthcoming. And we learned a lot about the barriers within clinics, um, which was really helpful. Um, so a lot of participants told us that 
they are really nervous when they attend a new setting and that they'd be extra nervous or anxious if they had to attend a new setting and it was also about their sexual health because taking care of their sexual health for the first time would make them feel a bit anxious and a bit nervous as well. Um, so the environment, the clinic environment was really important. That was something that that they mentioned a lot, especially the welcome. So they said that they wanted staff to be really welcoming when they got there. They said they were a lot were really worried that when they got to the clinic, um, they might feel too nervous to talk or they might not know where to go. So they wanted the first person that they saw to be really welcoming and put them at ease. Waiting rooms were really important as well. Our participants were great in that they were really clear throughout that there is no kind of single one thing that works for neurodivergent people, as we'd expect, because we're talking about a huge group of people. We're not talking about a monolith here. We're talking about like a lot of different experiences within the umbrella of neurodivergence. So um, they they said that for some, for some of them, they said, I really wouldn't want to wait in a busy waiting room I would want to be in a quiet space I would want to be able to to gather my thoughts and I wouldn't want the sensory overload of sitting with someone else in an in a place where there's noise and maybe there's also bright lights but on the flip side of that some people said I actually if it was really quiet I'd feel really nervous I wouldn't be able to relax so actually there being some background music or there being something that I could do would would really relax me um, some people made some really great suggestions like having um, noise cancelling headphones on offer so that you could have the same waiting room but people could experience it a little bit differently um, which was really nice um, and I think a big thing was that people wanted staff to be able to communicate with them and to not feel like they were being a burden on those staff it was it was actually quite illuminating a lot of young people said that they felt always felt that they were overreacting or being overdramatic by booking an appointment. And they were always worried that if they took that appointment and they didn't really need it, they were wasting it for someone else. So they wanted staff to be really um, good at communicating with them and able to put them at ease and reassure them that actually everyone has equal rights to, to coming. And if you're worried about something, you really should be going to get it seen to a sexual health clinic. Um, they wanted staff to be able to talk to someone, even if they're having a meltdown or a shutdown. So a meltdown would be kind of a very um, almost explosive reaction where someone's in a state of overwhelm and it kind of spills out of the body. A shutdown is kind of the opposite, where someone's in a state of overwhelm, but the body kind of closes, closes down. And they wanted staff to be able to just provide space for that and not feel overwhelmed in dealing with that so I think it it, it was really it, it it taught us a lot that this research it taught us that that young people really just want um staff to be able to meet them where they are and that that's what everyone wants I think when they go to see um someone about their sexual health so they gave us some really good tips about that which was great yeah definitely so, sounds really good kind of learnings from from that research and I was also interested in kind of outside of the clinic so what kind of barriers do neurodivergent young people face it could be kind of in school or can you talk a little bit about that yeah so that was I think possibly um even more interesting than the barriers that we found at clinic actually um and that is that the young people we talked to said a lot about the barriers that they face 
in terms of knowing about their sexual health and in terms of knowing about their rights to visit a clinic quite often. So we did have one participant who said, I, I didn't know that there's any anything about your health that you didn't just go to your GP for. So just the idea that you can go to a sexual health clinic and that you should be going to a sexual health clinic regularly if you're sexually active was something that hadn't landed on this young person's radar, which I thought was, was really interesting. Um, and that there's a few reasons that neurodivergent young people might experience barriers around knowing about their sexual health. And I think sometimes it might be that if, someone in school um, is identified as neurodivergent or experiences a label of having a special educational need, they might not attend the same relationships and sex education lessons as their peers. They might be um, in a different lesson at that time. Sometimes the time that is given to relationships and sex education is also used for other things, maybe catching up on English or maths or, or other lessons that they maybe need a bit more support in. So they might miss out on that education and obviously if that's if there's only one slot a week say that 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 education is offered that means they miss it so they if they miss that lesson they're, they're not necessarily given the chance to catch that up so um it is really it is a really important part of learning so if someone misses it because of illness or another lesson we, we would love to see people um having the chance to to catch up on their relationships with sex education and having it seen as um, a subject of equal weight with other subjects um, as well some neurodivergent people may be a little bit more isolated than their peers especially if they may be also um, experience ill health they might not be um, in school quite as much um, but they also might not have as large a friend group so quite often we notice that young people solidify their values around sex and relationships by having those organic conversations with their friends or maybe even their family about things that they've learned. They might kind of test out that knowledge a little bit by talking to people about what they think about things. And some neurodivergent young people might not have the same opportunity for that. Um, they might not feel able to talk to their families about relationships and sex. Quite often we are inclined to, to protect young people, especially those with a learning disability from learning about sex because we think it might be be frightening or worrying for them um but it is really important that we're not using um neurodivergence as a reason not to inform somebody about relationships and sex education um especially because we know that there are some neurodivergent young people in particular those with autism or learning disabilities who are at a greater risk of sexual exploitation or controlling relationships um may even statistically be more likely to experience sexual abuse. So what we want is that those young people are really aware of the support networks that are open to them and that they know that they can attend the sexual health clinic to get help with their sexual health and their relationship health if they need to. Um, I think as well, another thing that we forget is that some young people might be less able to seek out information on their own. So for some young people, it might feel really natural to to go online and research where your nearest sexual health clinic is. That might be something that you arrive at um, by yourself. But for some young people who maybe don't have digital literacy or aren't able to, to type by themselves or for whatever reason, feel a little bit less able to seek out that information, it can be really difficult to, for them to find information out independently. Um, and all of these things individually can be barriers. But if you imagine that we could have several 
um, neurodivergent young people who experience all of those barriers at once, that really does have a cumulative effect on the difficulty of accessing um, sexual health care and relationship advice. Well, that last statement, Helen, that is quite impactful. And coming back to what you said, then in terms of educating as well, and in terms of the responsibility that schools have to play, they need to be able to identify this and put things in place so that everybody gets uh, an equal chance to learn about sexual health or what's out there in terms of services that can assist uh, individuals. I want to know, so in terms of, we've spoken about the schools, but in terms of Brooke, how do you support your your staff with training or education what do you do you do internally yeah so um obviously the young people told us that they want our staff to be trained and that is one of the first things that that we've taken away from from that consultation we did um we did already offer some training around neurodivergence anyway before the consultation but we we have upped that since we carried out this research so we do offer we offer an um a package on autism and learning disabilities for our staff. And then we also have a full day's training around neurodivergence in general and how to um, work with neurodivergent people, things that you might need to be aware of in terms of the environment that you work in, all of the things the young people told us. Um, And we offer that for our staff that are working in education and clinical settings so that they are armed with tools to adapt their practice as they go when they're working with neurodivergent young people. We have um, an internal working group around neurodivergence. So we do have staff that are looking at current research, that are identifying priorities across the organisation, places where we can start new projects to improve access for neurodivergent people. And that includes for our staff. Um, We also have an internal social space for staff. We, We have um, a platform called Workplace where we can communicate uh, as a group of staff and we have a informal social space for neurodivergent staff just to kind of talk about their experiences as neurodivergent staff which is is really valuable I think people have said it, it's been a, a valuable um, thing for them and then we're also looking at um, our policies and our recruitment and how we can adapt our recruitment policies for staff that are neurodivergent, things that neurodivergent staff might need once they start to work with us, how we can um yeah, how we can start to adapt our practices for neurodivergent staff. So we are supporting our staff and staff are um developing their knowledge in neurodivergence along the journey with us as an organization so that we can improve our access for the people that we work with. And uh, of course, that that learning and training is going to be continuous as you find more insights um, on how to make it more accessible. But I want to put it to you, Helen. What do you, where do you see the future going in terms of accessibility for neurodivergent people and uh, accessing sexual sexual health services? So my personal hope for in the future um, for neurodivergence accessibility is that actually it wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily be continuing to do anything specific around neurodivergence accessibility because in the future it will all be so embedded that a neurodivergent person will have everything they need to access our clinic equally to their peers and when they arrive at our clinic our staff will use a range of communication methods like they do now 
but even more so, so that um, a, a person who has any kind of communication needs or who is neurodivergent, whatever access needs they have, we'll be able to meet them as best we can in the clinic. So my hope is that we will still talk about accessibility, but we'll be talking about it from a point of view of how accessible everything is and how easy it is to access our clinics and how um, how much people feel that, or how, sorry, how people feel that they can access a clinic regardless of their need and that it's easy and it's safe and it's a really healthy experience going to a sexual health clinic regardless of their lived experience. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. And we all, so we always end our episodes with a, a key takeaway as well. So what would your kind of key takeaway be for our listeners? I think my key takeaway would be that um, if we can learn more and appreciate more about neurodivergence, it hopefully means that we can communicate with and support everyone better. Um, but also to remember that however much we know about neurodivergence, however much we learn, um, we we don't necessarily know more about neurodivergence than the person with that lived experience and that we always want to be listening and we always want to be learning. Thank you so much, Helen, for coming on the podcast and thank you for sharing those insights on how um, neurodivergent people can access sexual health services and what to look out for. And thank you for collaborating with us as well, Brooke Charity. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you as well. Um, I've definitely learned a lot, especially from the kind of research that you've done. It's really, really interesting to hear. And I hope um, the listeners take away a lot as well. And yeah, thanks to our listeners for joining us this week. Uh, make sure you're following our podcast on Spotify and feel free to give it a rating and review as well. Keep your eyes peeled for our next guest and the episode which will be dropping next month. Thank you again. And we'll see you next time on Diversity and Inclusion. Satisfying the tick box. Thank you.